Hi, this is Jeff Kober, and we welcome you to this Disney at Work podcast. We are excited to have you here today. In fact, uh, boy, this is our 15th podcast for 2020, so we have been consistent. We have been on a roll. In fact, this is our second podcast for this week. We felt real strongly that with all the parks being closed and so forth, we just needed to to bring a little bit more magic to you. So uh, we're hoping that you're joining us for the second podcast and having a chance to listen to them all. The challenge, of course, to the second podcast is that it is also about It's a Small World. Earlier in the week, we uh, we provided a podcast and post via Disney at Play, which compared and contrasted all six It's a Small World attractions that have been created uh, for the New York World's Fair and for Disney parks over the decades. We used a comparison chart, which showcased many of the nuances found in each of the uh, attractions, what was different about them, their facades, where they were located, their length, what kind of fume of uh, fume system that they had, fume, um, yeah, flume, flume system, not fume system, flume system uh, that they had, whether they had holiday layovers or Disney characters added and so forth. If you haven't had a chance to check out that podcast and post, please do so. Lots of great information. It is a unique podcast. Lots of people have talked about Small World, but this is the one that really compares them all, helps you decide which one's the best out of all of them. So hopefully you've had a chance to check this out. Now today, today I know this is crazy to do It's a Small World again, but here we're actually going to focus on life's lessons that are learned from It's a Small World. Now, I, I got to tell you, this is a risk because there are a few of you out there going, oh my goodness, it's a small world. That is so annoying. You get in the boat and those dolls stare at you and they sing and you can't get the song out of your mind and it goes on and on and it never ends and so forth. I realize that there are a choice few of you who do not get this attraction. I appreciate you. I understand you, you're totally wrong, but I appreciate you notwithstanding. However, this podcast is intended to really kind of cherish what makes its small world just so cool and so wonderful and so inspirational. And um, it doesn't matter which attraction, which uh, version I've been on, I'm always find something that tugs at my heart. And so we wanted to share three messages of inspiration that come from this attraction. And, and at the heart of this attraction are the lyrics written by Richard M. and Robert B. Sherman. All of these life lessons we're talking about today are tied to the song itself. Now, I promise not to sing this song, and that's a little difficult because uh, all of this week, my older autistic son has been playing Chitty Chitty Bang Bang, and it reminds me that when that movie first came out, I was in second grade, and we learned the song in second grade, and we sang it at the annual choir concert, and my job was to introduce that song before we sang it. So I stepped forward to the mic, and I said, our next song that we're singing will be Chitty Chitty Bang Bang, and all of a sudden the entire audience just erupted in laughter and I had no clue why everybody was laughing. The, the audience was laughing, the choir was laughing, 
even the choir uh, conductor teacher who really didn't crack very many smiles was laughing and I felt really stupid at that moment. But I had no idea that I was actually sing-songing the words uh, to the title of the, sh of the thing. So I'm going to try not, I'm going to refer to the lyrics without trying to sing them just so that you do not end up having those songs just run through your mind. Um, it's a Small World's been a favorite since it's opened in 1964 at the New York World's Fair. Afterwards, it came home to Disneyland. Like our last podcast, um, it's been placed at Magic Kingdom, at Walt Disney World, at Tokyo Disneyland, at Disneyland Paris, and at Hong Kong Disneyland. Each version of that attraction has used two, um, two verses of lyrics you will recognize these lyrics. It's a world of laughter, a world of tears. It's a world of hope and a world of fears. There's so much that we share that it's time we're aware. It's a small world after all. Then in the second verse, there is just one moon and one golden sun and a smile means friendship to everyone. Though the mountains are wide and the oceans divide, it's a small world after all. Now, actually, that second verse is really what we're going to pay attention to. Um, and, and you recognize those two versions, even though they're sung in different languages throughout the rides. We should have, uh, we should tell you, however, that at least three more sets of lyrics were at one point written, written for a event show called Disney on Parade. This was like, um, um, Disney on wood before Disney on ice is how they, it was more of a dance show, parade show, but it had all the Disney characters that went across the country. If you've never looked at Disney on parade, it's so cool. It's an event show that traveled the country from 1969, 1975. And as a boy growing up in Phoenix, other than going to Disneyland, this was the big thing I looked forward to. And the last, um, there were four editions of this show. In the last three, they had added additional lyrics. And I want to read those two. You can also refer to our post um, to, to hear the, or to see the words themselves, to see the lyrics. It's a world of starlight, a sky and sea. It's a world of wonder for you and me, like a world without end. But come closer, my friend. It's a small world after all. In a world where people are still apart, build a bridge, or handshake, or hopeful, a hopeful start. If we hold out our hands, we will soon understand. It's a small world after all. If we just lock hands clear around the earth, we will know how much brotherhood is worth. It's a chain strong as steel. In its strength, we can feel. It's a small world after all. All these lyrics I love. I think they have amazing messages. I want to return to verse two and talk about it. three lessons. The first is, there is just one moon and a golden sun. The lyrics send a compelling message of harmony and understanding. Yet, the irony of all of this is that the Sherman brothers, as successful as they were, really didn't enjoy working together. Moreover, they made no association with each other afterwards, and their families were practically strangers to one another. Roy Disney referred to their tempers as polar opposites. Bob is feed the birds, 
Dick is super califragilistic expialidocious. You can tell if you watch videos of both of them performing and being around a piano and talking to the camera, you can see those two personalities play out under the themes of those two songs. If you study their other works, you will see that same thing continue on. So you see things like Hushabye Mountain, which is so Bob, at the same time, something like Chitty Chitty Bang Bang, which is so, so much of Richard Sherman. It wasn't until 2002 at the London stage premiere of Chitty Chitty Bang Bang that their sons started to reach out to each other. At that time, one brother was living in Beverly Hills and the other was living in London. As cousins, Greg and Jeff began to interview people who knew their fathers over the years. Disney legends like Julie Andrews, Roy Disney, Angela Lansbury, and Dick Van Dyke all wanted to share their memories of working with the brothers. When Greg showed his father the emotional interview done with Kenny Loggins, he turned to his son and agreed to get the families together. The result became a video or a documentary video called The Boys, The Sherman Brothers Story, a movie that makes no villain out of either brother, but simply tries to show how different people work together. While it's ironic that they went so long unable to reconcile personally, it is amazing that what they made, what made them come together creatively was their conflict toward each other. That friction, those individual strengths created a contribution that is really an amazing musical library crafted over six decades, far longer than other songwriting greats such as the Beatles or the Beach Boys. So ironic from two men who wrote a song for this attraction that we call It's a Small World. They themselves, by the way, call it a prayer for peace. The words of the second verse speak of just one moon and one golden sun. In truth, Richard and Robert were the sun and the moon to the entire Walt Disney organization. Totally different, but each radiating light in their own way. Just one moon and a golden sun. And now lesson two, and a smile means friendship to everyone. When Walt Disney opened Disneyland in 1955, it became a question as to who to hire to run the park. The initial response from others was to employ carnival workers to come in and operate the attractions. After all, they had the quote-unquote experience. But it quickly became obvious that the look, demeanor, and appearance of carnival workers was the very thing Walt Disney was trying to do away with. In time, it became apparent that if Walt Disney wanted friendly employees, he would have to hire friendly people. They could always be trained to operate the rides and attractions, but you have to hire for friendly customer service. You have to hire people who smile and who bring a natural aura to them of friendliness. Then you have to set firm appearance guidelines and enforce them. You can't help but smile when you board a boat 
at It's a Small World and take a journey across the seas. There was a Forbes article written by Ron Gutman. In it, he says, quote, smiling is not just a universal means of communicating. It's also a frequent one. More than 30% of us smile more than 20 times a day and less than 14% of us smile less than five times a day. In fact, those with the greatest superpowers are actually children who smile as many as 400 times per day. He continues on to say, have you ever wondered why being around children who smile frequently makes you smile more often? Well, there were two studies from 2002 and 2011 from Uppsala University in Sweden, and they confirmed that other people's smiles actually suppress the control we usually have over our facial muscles, compelling us to smile. They also show that it's very difficult to frown when looking at someone who actually smiles, end of quote. All that said and done, if you hire friendly employees and you train them on the importance of being friendly, how do you support them? That cast member will interact with at least half a dozen individuals before he or she steps on stage in front of the guests. How many times has he or she been greeted with a friendly smile? Truly the back of the house is actually the front of the house to the frontline employee. That same Forbes article noted a 30-year longitudinal study by UC Berkeley that, quote, examined the smiles of students in an old yearbook and measured their well-being and success throughout their lives. By measuring the smiles in the photographs, the researchers were able to predict how fulfilling and long-lasting their marriages would be, how highly they would score on standardized tests of well-being and general happiness, and how inspiring they would be to others. The widest smilers consistently ranked highest in all of the above. End of quote. No wonder you want to hire friendly employees. If you want to be successful, find friendly people. Of course, it's more than just hiring. You need to train them on the importance of being friendly. And you need to support them with an environment or culture that is friendly. There are a couple of stories I want to share uh, from legendary uh, Disney legend Alice Davis. Um, she actually provided these quotations are found in Mark Davis's uh, new uh, two-volume set, Imagineering the Disney Theme Parks. If you have not purchased these books, they are amazing. If you're not aware, Alice Davis was first brought on to Disney to design the costumes for all of the dolls. There are about 300 of them um, at Disneyland, and I think a lesser, slightly lesser number was needed for the original uh, New York World's Fair. But an amazing number of costumes. And she went to Walt Disney and she asked him, well, what's the budget? And he was very clear up front and said, don't you worry about that. Make each costume, make each doll like something every child would want to have. Don't worry about the money. However, there were other people who gave her a much more difficult time. And one of them was the Admiral Joe Fowler. 
um, who was a can-do kind of guy. But he wouldn't, in her, uh, in her quotation, quote, Admiral Joe Fowler wouldn't give me any money. And he was supposed to. And it was going on three months. I finally said, quote, excuse me. And I left what I was working and went down to see him at the office at Disneyland. And he was sitting at the desk and the secretary came in and said, I had to stand and wait until he would see me. And then I came in and he had me stand in the center of the room. And he had me stand there for over half an hour. I said, quote, I came to talk to you about something very short. We're rushed on the costumes and I would appreciate it if you would listen to me for one moment and I'll be gone. And he said, quote, you will move when I want you to. Quote, so I stood there for quite a while in the middle of the room waiting at attention. And I finally said, quote, excuse me, but I have a room full of people that are working and Walt is paying them a salary and I don't want to waste the money. So I'll be down there. And if you want to see me again, you can call me. And with that, I turned around and I said, good afternoon. And I walked out. He didn't like that, end of quote. Now really, you can hire friendly, creative, imaginative, marvelous people, but honestly, if you don't give them the support and the help they need, then it's all for naught. She had the same challenge with the development of the costumes. The costumes were actually to be developed at Disneyland in their costuming studio, but she was up there at WED. And, uh, and she felt very um, clear that there needed to be pattern, pattern books, which gotta tell you in the early days of Disney, there was no, there was no building out blueprints. A lot of times they just made these audio animatronics and they made costumes and things of this nature just on the fly. And she said, so she said, I started a book and I had swatches of the material that uh, were used on one garment. The buckles, the fabrics, the trimmings, the braids, the whole, uh, the whole thing. That way, anybody could come in off the street and they would have the pattern. But they hadn't done anything like this before, so I was fighting them on it. And they were not making the patterns. I went down to Disneyland uh, for a while where they were working, uh, where they were making the costumes, and it just didn't work. So they had me come stay up at WED and do the drawings and then uh, and send them down to the park and talk to them on the phone. And the woman who was head of costuming down at the park, who was um, running the department, thought I was trying to get her job. At any rate, they, wouldn't, uh, they weren't getting the costumes done in time. And the figures were being finished and being set up on the soundstage and there weren't any costumes to dress them. Finally, we had a whole bunch of costumes come in at once, and I knew they couldn't have made them all as there were um, overlock stitching uh, done on them. And I knew that they didn't uh, make them because they didn't have any overlock machines at Disneyland or enough people to dress the dolls. In any case, I stayed late that night and dress the figures. And I came, and I think it was around 4.30 in the morning, and finished dressing them before Walt came in. 
so that they were all ready to go. And the girl couldn't believe that after being so hard on me that I, that I would help her out and make her look good. I said to her, it doesn't make any difference. It makes us all look bad if you look bad. I look bad. You know, it works both ways. I love both of these stories from Alice because you can imagine, mind you, we talked earlier in the week about the fact that they had less than a year to build this original small world. And there were deadlines. And if you look on the, on the, uh, on the website, I have a great little video interview of uh, Alice, and she talks about the details in these costumes. It is overwhelming how much attention and detail are put into each of these costumes and how individualized they are. And yet, here she was trying to create a pattern, trying to create a process, trying to work with people and not getting the support. You wonder how people end up not being friendly, even though when you hire them, uh, and they're, they're friendly and they're willing, they're wanting to do a great job. And then we put systems in their way that makes it difficult for them to be successful. You know, the fact of the matter is, is a smile means friendship to everyone. And a smile means how we greet and we work with each other. But it, but it also means how we approach our work with each other. Do our processes, do our workflows, do our efforts with others, are they friendly? Are they encouraging? Are they supportive of the people that we work with? We need to create for that kind of experience when we work with other people. And the people in the back of the house really matter to those who are in the front of the house. Lesson three, though the mountains are wide and the oceans divide, it's a small, small world. Among my childhood collections were Disney record albums that I gathered. Some were the larger kind, known as the LPs. They were about a foot wide, and they were the LP meant they were long playing. Others were actually much smaller. I had at least three Disney albums. Two of them were LPs in the longer version. One actually went through the entire ride narrative with Winston Hibbler, which was really weird because he spoke of the Tower of the Four Winds. The album came out at the time of the New York World's Fair, but I bought it at Disneyland years later. That was a little confusing, the graphics and the, the audio and all, but that was probably my one of my favorites. Uh, there was another one that was sung by a children's choir who I think recorded some of the original music, but they went on to record it's a small world, and that little version of It's a Small World is so beautiful, so sweet. You talk about that prayer for peace. That is the version that is the prayer for peace. But then they went on to sing for Jaca and some other international songs. I, I didn't really care for that. The third small world record I owned was a small version. These um, were smaller album collections, and in fact, there was a series called the read-along series. And what you would do is you would listen to the tape or to the record. And as you went through, uh, they would read it, your Disneyland host. And then as you got to the next page, Tinkerbell would would um, wave her, um, her wand and you'd hear the chimes and it was time to turn to the next page. And that's how you knew to go from one page to another. Um, this album I have, I cherish enormously. It is Walt Disney's story, 
of It's a Small World. You probably didn't know that there is a story associated with the attraction. Most people don't know, but there is. And tonight on this podcast, I'd like to share this story. Once there lived a little orphan boy who did not know either his real name or which country he came from. He did not know because nobody knew. People at the children's home where he stayed called him Bobby. Today, Bobby was going to Disneyland with the other children. He sat all by himself on the bus. Quote, I wish I belonged to a country and that I knew which country it was, he thought, for Bobby didn't feel he belonged anywhere. When the bus reached Disneyland, everyone went through the gates. Bobby became separated from the other children. For a while, he looked around. Then in Fantasyland, he saw a beautiful palace with an enormous white and gold clock in front. Bobby liked clocks. He had taken one apart once, but this was the biggest clock he had ever seen. He got into a boat for a closer look. As he sailed past the clock face, he heard the chimes telling the hour. Suddenly, Bobby was in an enchanted land. The sign said, welcome, in many languages. A group of Scandinavian children sang to him, while ice skaters whirled about on a rink above the water. A little farther on, the boat reached the British Isles. We folk were playing on a beautiful Irish harp. Perhaps my real name is Patrick, said Bobby. I do, I do like green. Then he heard English children singing to him from London Bridge and a little Scots piper playing his bagpipes. A flock of geese joined in the melody in Belgium, and in Holland, boys and girls, seated on tulips, clicked their wooden shoes to keep time with the music. When Bobby arrived in Spain and Portugal, the children there were playing and dancing. It's time we're aware. There's so much that we share, they sang. When he reached Italy, Future opera stars were singing arias by the Leaning Tower of Pisa. Graceful dancers in Gay Paris was putting on a show, and Alpine Yodeler's voice rang out to the accompaniment of Swiss bells. In Russia, a row of Cossacks danced to a ballad like a band. The sky in the Middle East was filled with magic flying carpets. What fun it would be to ride on one! A little Greek shepherd boy played on his pipes of pan. Hi! They're all playing the same song, thought Bobby. There is a wonderful Indian snake charmer. A golden goddess reigned over the land of Bali. Japanese boys were flying dragon kites above an orange Tory gate. And in Africa, what wonderful animals. Hippos, monkeys, giraffes, and a laughing hyena. Bobby liked uh, animals. Maybe I came from Africa, he said. There was an Egyptian boy on his very own camel. In South America, everyone was dancing. Suddenly, Bobby wanted to dance with them. He came to the end of the voyage with the words of the song running through his mind. Just one moon and a golden sun. And a smile means friendship to everyone. It's a small, small world. He still didn't know which country he came from, but he knew that a part of him belonged to every country, and a part of every country belonged to him. The boat sailed out into the bright sunlight and stopped. Bobby got out. He saw the boys and girls from the children's home and ran to join them. 
He felt alone no longer. He had friends all over the world. It's a small world after all. If there is a powerful message within this story and within the attraction itself, it's that while the mountains are wide and the oceans divide, we are really just one people. This is particularly true as we realize that all of us are currently subject to the same threat at the same time. Coronavirus, after all, is a great equalizer. If there is one opportunity, it's for all of us to realize that we are a part of everyone and that everyone is a part of us. It's a small world. It's a beautiful tale of diversity and inclusion. It's been sharing that message for decades, long before people saw it as an important component to a successful organization. Diversity at Disney includes, quote, valuing diversity of thought and perspective and connecting to the unique talents, gifts, backgrounds, and experiences that each individual brings, end of quote. Disney is not perfect in this effort, but no organization is. But I believe that the message transcends the politics and the bureaucracy. Consider for a moment that though the mountains are wide and the oceans divide, it's a small world after all. Now, in our Disney at Work podcast, we bring for you souvenirs for you and your life, for your organization and for your personal journey. From the three stories I shared, allow me to share with you, to invite you to consider some ideas that you could take with you. First, what do you do to get along better with those you'd rather not work with? How well can you separate business from your personal life or preferences or feelings? What criteria do we use to hire people? How important is it to have customer-friendly skills? To be able to smile. How is the back of the house supporting the front of the house in delivering a friendly experience? How friendly are we toward others in terms of the processes we use in terms of the support we render, in terms of the help we give. Do we cherish diversity? Do we really believe in the unique talents, gifts, and experiences that others bring? Do we let the mountains and oceans divide us? Are we one? Do we cherish what is common among us? Do we include everyone? Well, those are my messages today with Disney at work. I hope that you can take something from this and find inspiration as you move forward. If nothing else, remember the next time you board, it's a small world. There really is a message there if you just look and listen. Well, thank you for joining us for this Disney at Work podcast. If you're listening to us, you undoubtedly have a love of all things Disney. Don't you just wish you could bring the magic back to your own place of enjoyment, into your own life? Well, that's what we do at Disney at Work. 
bring you best in business ideas from the happiest place on earth to you and your workplace. We bring those concepts to you via our posts, podcasts, videos, books, programs, and consulting. We've spoken today about creating friendly guest experiences. Be sure to check out on Amazon my book, The Wonderful World of Customer Service at Disney. It is a celebration of great Disney practices that can be applied to any service organization. In fact, one chapter is called Smile, Darn Ya Smile. It's, it's actually not based on Small World, it's based on the song from Who Framed Roger Rabbit. But it talks about the power of a smile. Check out the book, it's loaded with practical ideas that can be integrated into any guest experience. Stay tuned as we have new events, books, and programming available to you. If you want to know more about Disney at Work offerings, please subscribe by signing up to receive one of our free guides to include a complete guide to Star Wars Galaxy's Edge, offering hundreds of unique photos, videos, and interactive maps. You can sign up at Disney at Work. Disney at Work is part of Performance Journeys, which is committed to helping you improve your organization. If you need a keynote speaker, a seminar for your business conference or, or group, we offer a variety of topics to include leadership, employee engagement, customer service, teamwork, change, dealing with chaos, finding courage in difficult times. Those are some of our newer topics that we're even providing webinars for right now as many teams are having to work virtually. Know that when you invite me to speak or work with your organization, you're bringing board somebody who has successfully applied these ideas in the trench for scores of organizations for more than 25 years. For more information, please visit me at disneyatwork.com or performancejourneys.com, my parent company. Better yet, contact me by email or phone and just talk to me about what's happening in your workplace and how I can help you to take your organization to the next level. Listening is the best gift I can give you. So, hey, feel free to reach out and discuss your needs. Well, thank you for this week's show. We appreciate you taking the time to listen. We really appreciate those who take the time to share this podcast and others like it with friends and colleagues. And finally, in the words a Sinbad storybook voyage, be sure, follow the compass of your heart. Have a great day.